Hey gang, it's Nick. Just want to let you know that we had a bit of a technical glitch recording this episode that I did not catch until we were in post-production, and it means that my microphone for the duration of this episode has some pretty scratchy audio quality. Our regular listeners know that this is not normal, and we will get back to our sweet, silky tones next week, but I encourage you to power through because this is a really wonderful episode about two gorgeous movies, and I don't want you to miss it. All right, thanks. Hey, friends. Welcome to Happy Tears. I'm Brandon. And I am Nick, and this is Happy Tears, a podcast where two sensitive boys talk about the art that they love so much so that it often moves them to tears. Today on the podcast, it's another anniversary episode. So we have two incredible films, both released 20 years ago, both of them from the same region of the world, specifically Hong Kong, China, and Taipei, Taiwan, both from celebrated masters of cinema, and both masterpieces themselves. We're talking today about the intoxicating, doomed romance of In the Mood for Love from director Wong Kar Wai and Edward Yang's multi-generational family story, Yee Yee. This is Happy Tears. All right, Nick. Well... We uh, love to start this podcast off with happy tears from the week. Do you have any this week, Nick? Brandon, have I mentioned to you before that I happen to be a space boy? Uh, Almost every day. (laughs) Super space boy over here, Nick Melita. Uh, I love space. I love things about space. Um, Although, despite how much I uh, sort of romanticize space, I wouldn't say I'm the most knowledgeable person when it comes to the history of the space program here in America or across the world. Um, But I've been watching some space stuff recently. Uh, Many of it's been educational. First, uh, the Netflix documentary about the Challenger explosion. It's a four-part mini-documentary. They're like 40 minutes to an hour each an episode, so it's not the lengthiest documentary series in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, It's very emotional because it's about a national tragedy, especially in a time where the space program was a huge beacon of hope for uh, many Americans, and it was also a time where tragedies weren't happening on like a weekly basis like they do nowadays. I learned a lot. I cried a lot, and uh, if you are a space boy or space girl, super recommend uh, the Challenger documentary. Um, and then second, I've been watching an HBO series from the 1990s. It's called From the Earth to the Moon. It's a narrative series, executive produced by Tom Hanks. I had never really heard of it. I just kind of saw it on HBO Max, and I've been watching it. It's it's kind of it's almost like. Band of Brothers style in that it's like uh, like reenacting historical events um, with like the opening of these episodes starts with like Tom Hanks kind of talking to the camera and like setting the 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 table for what's gonna unfold in the next episode in the, in this episode and then um, instead of being like one long 
narrative story, it's kind of like little vignettes. Like there will be a title card and then a and then a five minute scene and then another title and then another scene. But it is sequential and it just tells the story of the Apollo missions. So the first episode was all about everything leading up to Apollo. So like the Gemini missions and stuff. Yeah. And then and uh, like the it, it starts essentially with Russia sending the first man into space and like what launched the great space race between America and Russia. And then like episode two is all about uh, Apollo one. And, uh, and then it just progresses from there. I've only watched those first two episodes, but I've cried at both of those too. <laughs> Anytime I see footage of a rocket launching into space, I cry, whether it's documentary footage, whether it's <laughs> narrative, whether it's fiction, generally speaking. And yeah. so, um, you know, space is just a, a happy tear jerker for me and that's where i'm at so yeah that's what's making me cry lately how about you (laughs) so i finished this book uh called let's go so we can get back in parentheses by jeff tweedy uh it's his memoir he's the lead singer of wilco um a band which i like a lot um but still haven't feel like i haven't fully you know experienced all that they have to offer and and stuff but i i really i listened to this on audiobook and i really really loved it um i think it's uh jeff narrates it and it's really funny i feel like artist autobiographies can be pretty hit or miss but i think this is definitely one of the better ones so jeff talks about uh kind of his experience growing up but he talks about his his family life and kind of his relationships uh with each of his parents and specifically like the death of his father there's a moment where they didn't have a great relationship and there's a moment when he's talking about his kids and how one of his kids is uh what he's saying to his father at kind of on his deathbed and then playing music for him that i thought was just an incredible thing to listen to and um you could tell he's emotion. It's it's cool because you get his um, kind of emotion in his voice when he's telling these things on the audiobook. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you even get snippets of his wife comes in a little bit on the audiobook and and his son as well. But that that music experience with his kids and his his dad it was a it was a special moment in the book and definitely had some some tears creeping. Highly recommend that if you're an audiobook person and want to hear about uh some some rock and roll rock and roll baby in the midwest so all right would you like to proceed let's do it let's start with in the mood for love siempre que te pregunto que cuando como y donde tu siempre me respondes quizás 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 so in the mood for love so here is the criterion description of that film. Hong Kong, 1962. Chow Mo Wan, that's the character name, played by Tony Long, and Su Li Zhen, played by Maggie Chung, move into neighboring apartments on the same day. Their encounters are formal and polite until a discovery about their spouses creates an intimate bond between them. At once delicately mannered and visually extravagant, Juan Carl Wise' In the Mood for Love is a masterful 
evocation of romantic longing and fleeting moments. With its aching musical soundtrack and exquisitely abstract cinematography by Christopher Doyle and Mark Lee Ping Bin, this film has secured a place in the cinematic canon and is a milestone to Wong's redoubtable career. I've never heard the word redoubtable, but I assume it's a good thing. Because this is a great movie from a masterful <laughs> filmmaker. Am I right or am I right? It means uh, it means formidable. Ah, sure. Yeah. This is my first Wong Kar Wai film. I am ex- ecstatic to dive into his uh, his career because it does seem very redoubtable. <laughs> so you already talked about how uh, it's been 20 years since he's a come out. The U.S. release of Yee Yee, I believe, was October 6th of 2020. And one thing we saw when we were, you know, discussing doing these two films was that they are both really high on critics lists. TheyShootPictures.com kind of did an aggregated list from all these critics on films of the 21st century. And In the Mood for Love takes first place. And Yee Yee takes third place. So obviously, two acclaimed films both in the you know asian cinema canon and yeah we were, we were really stoked to dive into these two films yeah and just for context some other names in that like top 10 of the most acclaimed films of the 21st century number two was mulholland drive from david lynch there will be blood paul thomas anderson the tree of life from terrence malick spirited away hayao miyazaki eternal sunshine uh some real heavy hitters in there and these oh, two yeah. among the top deservedly so so go- just going right into this this movie i think the plot is is stunning i think the acting is incredible i love so many aspects about this movie but the the thing that grabbed hold of me and just wouldn't let go is the absolute stunning cinematography so let's start there perfect i love how detailed the cinematography is i mean you have so many different kinds of shots and frames and um a lot of it is like you're in these like corridors and really in like close quarters with the subject and the way he finds like hyper detailed and really kind of like a lot of times like evocative shots of like hands we talk about the the use of slow-mo in this film and we uh, is really effective and then just going into like the lighting and the really rich colors it all adds up to something that is like eye candy the whole film but is really a part of you know it's working hand in hand with the themes of this it's not just pretty to be pretty or whatever right this may be the most visually beautiful movie i've ever seen like it's inspired me to go on letterbox and make a list of just like wonderful uses of color in film and this was mm-hmm. like the, the the crown jewel in that in that list but the way that we're a fly on the wall for for all of these these little subtle moments it's a movie of extreme subtlety despite being so visually stunning and right it really is just breathtaking yeah and you could say that about a lot of his films in terms of like their visual style is super strong but here they just those like really rich reds and everything just really contribute to the mood uh and feel of this film so much that it's like pretty singular i feel like and then just going in straight from there like the costumes are also very colorful and striking beautiful fabrics beautiful p 
people that the costumes are on? <laughs> yeah, so this is set in from like 62 to 1966 in Hong Kong. And so you've got these period 1960s dresses and suits. And these people just look like the coolest people in the world. And the two leads happen to be the most beautiful people in China, I would imagine. <laughs> Maybe the world. I mean, they're <laughs> they're just so fucking cool and so beautiful. And man, do they put on a wonderful display of, of acting as well. Yeah, it's really interesting because they're playing... I think this is a good time to go into this, but they're playing different roles throughout this film and acting them, you know, really well. But it kind of touch upon this in the description from Criterion that you read. But these are two people that are in really close quarters living like right, right next to each other and find out that their spouses are having an affair with each other. The way that plays out is them getting to know one another, but also trying to figure out kind of what about themselves, put them in this position, uh, but also figure out their relationship together, our two main characters. Because what's really interesting is that you, you don't see the you know, the faces of the their spouses, this whole film. And it's just kind of this really interesting interplay that I think was written really, really well. And like you said, it's subtle. Like oftentimes you don't know if they're talking this way and this is like some bond between the two characters or if they're acting as the as one of their other spouses kind of role-playing these situations. Right, because there there's a point in the movie pretty early on once they have both discovered that they're being cheated on that they find themselves kind of in a, in a diner or restaurant together and slowly kind of reveal little bits of information to signal that they, that they each know what's going on, right? Right. And then from that moment on, they become this little unit, right? Like they, they are the scorned. <laughs> and um, from there, yeah, they, they start this game, I guess, where, where they, they, they claim they want to understand how it happened, how, right. how their spouses would be brought to cheat on them. And so they, they role play. And that in itself, you and I have talked about, it, it's just like a, a crazy idea for a film when you think about how these two people who have been cheated on are playing each other's spouses in order to pursue their own spouse, right? Is that, right. how, is that, do I have it right? I've, you can get lost in the logic of it even. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think it's a. It's both that and something else too. It's like a really, just a super interesting dynamic that I've never seen on screen before. And when you add the elements that we just talked about uh, with the cinematography and lighting and mood, all of these things that contribute to that really unique dynamic there, I think it's pretty special what we're what we're seeing on screen and so like you said the idea of you know rejection is a big part of this film because both of these people feel like they have been rejected and they're trying to figure out why and i think it is um really interesting take on kind of just human nature and our habit or you know how we typically go into this position of feeling like it's our fault or we did something Mm. uh to not you know, gain the love of the other or to lose it in some way. Them playing that out to figure themselves out is really, yeah, it's it's really, really interesting to watch. Yeah. This is, in many ways, a very still film. There are shots where it, just these two people are in a room being sad. <laughs> like, obviously, <laughs> there there's 
there's action and there's there's dialogue and there's narrative, but there's also like there's stairs. There are stairs, dude. There's stairs <laughs> up and down, but there are also like staring off into space in melancholy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there, there are both, both kinds, kinds of stairs. stairs. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and those are some of my favorite moments. You know, one thing we haven't even mentioned is the music in this film. There's this, yeah. specifically, there's a couple of different pieces of music that he goes back to over and over. One of which is like, in a, I think it's an original composition for this film. And it is this kind of sad, melancholy waltz. I, when I hear it, it's it's like a waltz of longing is kind of my, like there's a bit of that sadness in there, but there's like a, a longing or desire in there as well. And that plays as kind of like the musical theme throughout the, the film. And we'll often come in and they'll have the, the slow-mo shots along with it. And yeah. And it's, it's such a perfect piece of music for this type of film you often get it with like you said slow-mo or sometimes it's just these like deep blues and reds and yellows there's one where it's just like it's like a close-up of her looking off and forlorn and he's like kind of right behind her staring at her it's just like a shot depicting their sadness like there are such beautiful stretches of them just wallowing together right <laughs> and it's just insane how gorgeous and, yeah could make it's that, an yeah it's you an know? intoxicating is i think a word that comes to mind yeah when you were talking about um some of the the framing here and just some of the shots i like there's often a lot of profile shots that where you get one of them but like half of the frame is taken up by a wall or a doorway or something that make everything feel really tight. Yeah, it just really gives you the sense of place and them being close, but also it never really feels like open where they are. There's a great YouTube video by a YouTuber named The Nerd Writer. It's an essay about this movie and how Wong Kar Wai uses what he calls a frame within a frame. So almost every shot in this film, we are either looking through a doorway or through a window or past something obstructing in the foreground, you know, whether it's a, a curtain or a lamp. Um, you're almost never given a clear view of what you're looking at Um, or the subject is boxed in and 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 it feels claustrophobic and trapped and oppressed right that video was was really fascinating to to pick that apart and and i think it's just so smart and it's something that even if you don't notice it i think you feel it heartbreak can feel like a prison i feel like you know and and um i think this movie just captures that so perfectly yeah and one of the things that i find really i don't know after watching this i was watching some of the supplemental uh stuff that criterion provides and the actors and juan carwai are talking kind of about how this film came about and how it took like you know the 15 months to shoot and had gone through several different iterations um they kind of filmed a lot and changed a lot of what we see before it was over so one thing i found really interesting is them kind of like refining 
towards a more kind of mature and subdued film because they show some of the footage of the earlier shoots and the characters are really uh, kind of playful and there's like these erotic moments and there's even like dance scenes and goofiness that is like not in this final product and to see them kind of workshop from there to something this powerful was really really cool to hear about and to see some of the I mean obviously we we see what the final product is but see some of the original footage is pretty crazy it is so opposite of what this movie turned out to be right like yeah. if, if the original version was playful and uh like finger painting or jackson pollock you know splashing paint <laughs> this movie is like watching buckets of paint just spilled onto the floor slowly oozing together <laughs> you <Yeah>. know <laughs> yeah and it's crazy talking about how intentional every shot feels everything in this movie feels like it was done with such a precise vision right Mm -hmm. and it's that all the more crazy that a it's it went through many iterations to get to that point and b a lot of it was improvised you know it, it wasn't fully scripted it was Mm -hmm. outlined and the actors uh kind of found their way through scenes together along with the directors it's just like kind of mind-blowing that you could create something this first of all just incredible right but also something that just feels so this is the way it always was supposed to be from the moment that the idea came into Wong Kar Wai's head you know yeah you know what's interesting too is so we have covered Portrait of a Lady on Fire and I do feel like there are some moments from In the Mood for Love that, you know, remind me of, of moments in Portrait of a Lady on Fire, uh, whether it's kind of this forbidden love or this kind of like really interesting dynamic between the two main main characters and their situations. And then obviously the attention to detail that both of these directors have. And you could you could tell how both of these films were extremely well directed like you could tell their their hand was on every piece of of this uh, on both of those films so yeah i think that that's yeah just an interesting thing i I was thinking about watching and and then there's like you know some of the sensuality and stuff too between them yeah i mean there's a good film podcast called the next picture show that did a a double header with this movie and Moonlight also, uh, and they compared the two, you know, themes of forbidden love and and repressing who you are, and also a visual style with with colors and stuff like that that bleed through. Also, I mean, I think I think it's probably fair to say that this film influenced a lot of modern filmmakers. Yeah, and then just I guess lastly for me, I feel like the film uh, a lot of it. The feeling is very intoxicating. I feel like that kind of bleeds into the structure of this because you kind of don't really have a sense of time as you're watching this. Like it keeps on showing this clock throughout the film, but you don't really know like what day it is or stuff like that. And one thing I did find interesting, um, and it just reminds me how we miss certain things when we're watching films from different parts of the world that other people from that specific culture would notice is uh, Wong Kar Wai talks about in one of those special features he talks about how the food uh, that they're eating is kind of represents the season that they're in because um, those specific foods would be available to them in Hong Kong at that time. So even down to those types of details or specific music moments there that would have been, you know, things that they would have heard in that time period, but just like things that we might miss that, you know, contribute to the, the experience. 
I, I love kind of digging into that stuff after I watch a, a movie. So, uh, and Criterion's great for that. They provide those those little nuggets in the supplemental features. Yeah. Well, and aside from being a cultural barrier where we miss certain details the time thing also fits in thematically with with so much of the movie right like i feel like when you're depressed or brokenhearted or whatever the days just kind of bleed together right like everything just kind of feels like although i know that it happens over the course of a year or a couple years it could have happened in the course of a week for all i know it just right it it happens linearly but it just doesn't feel like it's like a all right day one day two day three it's just this you're just in this moment right do you want to go into uh into the happy tears then or if you have any yeah i mean the only I didn't have any full-on happy tears in this movie, although I do, I, like, super love it, and it's it's already gone on, like, my list of favorite movies. Um, but, like, I think the, the two scenes that I, I really had the most emotional re- reaction to was the first rehearsal scene they had, Walking in the Alley. It's really the first time that they choose to, to play this game, right? And, and yeah. we just... It starts to dawn on you what they're doing and if you really think about it like how painful it must be to reenact your own betrayal right like you're the you know mm-hmm. your partner's betrayal of you and so right. it's incredibly masochistic <laughs> and a super bummer in a lot of ways but also really beautiful so all of that to say it was perfect for me and was totally made for me. <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I, I can't think of like pinpoint some, a place where I, I felt, you know, just like an outburst or anything. But uh, there are some just moments of just sheer, you know, beautiful visuals that uh, were really emotionally engaging. And, and then there's this one kind of where they're both, their backs up kind of against the wall. And you really feel both of them being in the same kind of emotional space, you know, his back against the wall panned over to her on kind of the other side. Um, And the lighting there is so, so beautiful too. So, uh, you know, if there was maybe a close moment that, that might be one of them. Yeah, and then another one that I really loved that is, is very similar to that first scene I, I mentioned is they're they're in, I think, that same kind of alleyway, and it's the rain's coming down, and, and anytime it's raining in this movie, it's just so stunningly gorgeous. Um, but they, um, they kind of have, you know, throughout this whole film, as far as we know, they, they, they don't, they don't, act out of turn in turn in terms of uh consummating any sort of physical relationship but they do have a sort of quote-unquote breakup scene in this alley where they, they kind of have to confront their feelings she even says i didn't think you'd fall in love with me and he goes i didn't either sometimes feelings just creep up on you and that line felt so it hit really hard, and it blew. It blows me away thinking about that being an improvised line. What's crazy is the scene goes on, and I think they reveal that they are they're reenacting again. Like it's, I think they're rehearsing their own sort of breakup, mm-hmm. or maybe they're hoping that it's their spouses. But I don't think that's true. But that it is a a, a pretty great aspect of this movie that you never really know who you're watching is it just them as them is it them play acting or rehearsing and it becomes this little game as a viewer of trying to understand who you're watching and what their intentions are 
despite it just being these two actors the whole time. So I do want to to say one thing that maybe we'll put a spoiler warning here. We've been pretty fast and loose, although I don't think that we've revealed too much up until this point. But I do want to talk about something that has to do with the ending. So in case somebody doesn't want to be spoiled... Here's that warning. But I did want to ask you, because I I do think that the idea of misery-loving company plays a a big uh, role in this. I think part of why they have this very strong connection is because they're both heartbroken. They're both miserable, right? And and to have somebody to confide in that is in the super unique position of knowing exactly (laughs) where you are emotionally, right? Because... Just putting two characters together in this situation, I think, is really smart from Wong Kar Wai. Even in that, that last scene, you know, she says, I didn't think you'd fall in love with me. He says, I, I didn't either. The thing that the skeptic in me wants to, to question that and go, well, did they fall in love? Or did they fall in love with the shoulder to cry on, right? Right. I don't. Do you have any thoughts on that? Do you think that these two characters fall in love? Obviously, by the end, they don't. They they. It becomes well, a missed connection, right? Right. Well, do we want to not say how that? much do we want to say here? Okay. Um, <clears throat> we could do is. I mean, we could say we're revealing spoilers before this this kind of whole section, and, and just plug it back in if you want. Or I'll take that. Yeah, we'll I'll, say, I'll put that in later. So cool. I don't know. What do you What do you think? It's really tough because I I do feel like they whatever you want to call it, the connection is there and the timing is there. I don't know if we ever get that answer. I do think we get, like you said, how it how it ends and how you feel from the character's body language and, <laughs> and facial expressions that they are either reminiscing on a time together or we're hoping to maybe run into the other person. So I get that there's a sense of deep connection between these two people that are in emotionally very similar, you know, states and found each other in that moment together. And that was a special part of their lives. But I, I, I really don't, I don't know. I think it's, it's pretty hard to tell because like you said, there's so many things that feel very fluid and you don't really understand if, if they're being, um, you know, in the moment, real hundred percent them to each other, or if they're playing this, this sort of game. And even if they are playing this game, is that less real or is it just another way to, you know, another connect point that, um, right. Helps each other kind of, you know, be there for each other, but also understand each other in that, in that space. So I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it, it definitely, the cynic in me wants to say, well, you think you're in love now, but say you both got a divorce and you, tried to be together and once you don't have the right scorned lover to bring you together what do you got and maybe yeah they, they do, don't know it's, it's you know who right knows? right right yeah because they don't have a a background that we to build on we don't see them um kind of grow together um in that sort of way we just we see this shared experience play out and um you know which i think is so is so unique and and just a, a thrill to watch i feel like yeah for sure it's it's a stunning piece of art and and one thing that we didn't really mention but you know at the beginning and the end of this uh movie there are some um some titles that come across the screen that are kind of talking about memory mm-hmm. and uh you do get the sense that this film is being portrayed to us as if it is kind of being retold from memory which which also kind of 
makes sense with the the way that time is kind of uh, hard to perceive. You know, th- memories kind of kind of um, merge together and things like that. And it is so romantic, right? Like it's so easy to romanticize our past. So that's just like another aspect that we didn't dive super into, but is, is kind of at play in in the way he told the story. Yeah. But either way, man, what a movie. What a film. Can't wait to dive into more. Wong Sounds Kar-Wan. like you liked it. Oh, oh uh, yes, I did. Speaking of things I like, let's talk about another little movie from just, just a, I don't know, how far away is Taipei from Hong Kong? Doesn't matter. Let's talk about Edward Yang's Yee. Alright, so Yee Yee. Here's a description from the Criterion website. The extraordinary, internationally embraced Yee Yee, or a one and a two in English, directed by the late Taiwanese master Edward Yang, follows a middle-class family in Taipei over the course of one year, beginning with a wedding and ending with a funeral. Whether chronicling middle-aged father Inje's tentative flirtations with an old flame or precocious young son Yang Yang's attempt at capturing reality with his beloved camera, the filmmaker deftly imbues every gorgeous frame with a compassionate clarity. Warm, sprawling, and dazzling. This intimate epic is one of the undisputed masterworks of the new century. Uh, yeah, so Yi Yi debuted at Cannes in 2000, which uh, In the Mood for Love was also a part of that film festival in that year, which, wow, what a year. I know. Uh, so Edward Yang won Best Director for this. And then what did, what did In the Mood for Love win? Uh, just uh, Best Actor for Tony Okay. Wong. Okay. Yeah, so, uh, and then the U.S. release date was October 6th of 2000. So, uh, this is Edward Yang's last film. So, this is kind of like his uh, parting gift, if you will. He passed away of cancer several years after this was released. But he has kind of several other films that were acclaimed as well before this. And uh, kind of a master of Taiwanese cinema. I did watch a couple of YouTube videos that talked about... A little bit about the like the the film scene in Taiwan and how he was part of this like kind of small group of I don't know if avant-garde is the right word but like a, a new generation of filmmakers yeah like a new wave of film in Taiwan because before this new wave like a lot of these films were more like a propaganda style kind of uh, filmmaking and so um, once once this new wave came along uh, they really focused on the, you know, like artistic merit, I guess, of the films. But yeah, so do you want to start from the beginning? <laughs> that sounds like a great place to me. So um, Yi Yi, there, there's a couple of different translations to right. English that you could make. Uh, I think literal. I think the most literal is like one one. Um, or yeah, one and one maybe. One or, and one maybe. Something. Um, yeah. But but the the one that's like on the Criterion DVD and the one that I think is most commonly used is one and a two, which sounds kind of like a count in, like on a on a jazz number or really any any musical piece, right? And um, I think that's so fitting for uh, what this this movie is, especially because I think the music in it is. A really just like in the mood for love, the music in it is a really fundamental 
piece and is often very beautiful but also i think music plays a big role in this movie not just from the way it's scored and uh the soundtrack but also there are certain moments within the plot that that music plays a role some of those are my favorite elements of the movie starting with the opening sequence because you get this it it opens as you read in the description on a wedding and it's just kind of a montage of shots family you know this is a a family story told about multiple generations and you see the youngest boy yang yang or might be yang yang getting picked on by the girls you see people taking family photos but the music that's playing is this like folksy i don't know if folksy is the right word it's a an adaptation of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, which is this triumphant, you know, huge movement of this large symphony. Um, but it's adapted as a piano piece with, like, a slide guitar, and it just, something feels very homey about it. But the fact that it's this piece of music that is triumphant, it's called the Ode to Joy, right? Like, it's, it's, it is about the joys of life. And so I heard that. I heard this rendition and I was like, oh man, this movie's about to fuck me up. <laughs> and it did. Yeah, that that kind of, I feel like that, um, that opening sequence kind of sets the mood for the tone of the film and also kind of my, <laughs> the vulnerability element. Like there's a, I kind of was all at that same, same sort of level throughout the whole the whole, uh, the whole film. They start setting the table on things you're going to see throughout the movie here in this opening sequence. Like it's, it is a, a montage of family moments and a wedding ceremony is this ritual. And those are huge parts of this film, right? The different generations of a family and the things they're going through, different rituals of a culture and of a family. It really sets the table nicely um, yeah one film that we also covered that it rem- this uh, came to mind when we were watching even just from the beginning was the farewell because you get this big you know wide shot of the full family and there's even shots of grandma in the car and this you know movies kind of centered around this grandma figure as well so it's just like a lot of those elements are in the farewell. So that was one thing that came to mind because it has this kind of these wild wedding <laughs> wedding moments too that are, are quite funny. But just from the beginning, you get kind of like these like masterful shots too. Like the there's a shot where Yang Yang's in, you know, with the balloons. I think it's so good. But you get yeah. you get these like pinks and reds and this, you know, Taipei wedding happening. And so, yeah, the from here, the, the story goes, you're following this family of NJ and his kids and this grandma and then people kind of related to them and the family and some of their uh, kind of work relationships as well. But really focusing on this multi-generational family drama that just kind of plays out in this really subtle uh, slice of life way that you, I just, I love that you get the different perspectives of these, of all of these characters from the different generations and get to spend time with each of them, it gives this kind of holistic portrait of uh, a family and their city they're in. Yeah, I think all these characters are great. This movie is acted really beautifully. Um, 
and from what I understand, a lot of them, or a lot of the actors that Edward Yang works with are not particularly trained actors. Mm-hmm. I think both because I don't know that there's a, a huge community of actors in Taiwan or in Taipei, or at least in, in this era. And, and also I think that Edward Yang just uh, likes the, the kind of realism that, that you get from, from non-actors. Yeah, so the the kids in this film are are just that they're you know kind of pulled in, and they were both younger than what he had written their characters to be. Oh, really? But yeah, but he he liked them so much that they kind of fit. He said uh, of Yang Yang, he said he was so uh, just so smart <laughs> that like one of the first days on set that he started. Um, I think he was eight years old when he when they were filming this. He started telling him what uh, where the camera should be placed in the in the certain yeah. shots and stuff. God, yeah, I gotta which watch I think those is special features. Which, which I think, yeah, which I think is so funny. But well, it is tough to talk about the plot of this movie because there are so many different plot lines with every member of this family kind of on their own. I'll say I'll use the word adventure. A lot of this movie is just about the beauty of our messy lives. I think right. And so, you know, you've got what I guess is the main character of NJ in The Dad, but also, I mean, the daughter, Ting Ting, has a, a substantial storyline. Uh, Yang Yang, the, the youngest son, and even the, the I think he's the brother-in-law um, that's got, like, gambling debt and a bunch of issues. They all kind of have their own storylines, and it's pretty, I don't know if it's even amongst spread evenly among all of them but you get a substantial amount of time with everybody um but the one event that happens early on is right after the opening scene of the wedding uh grandma goes into a coma and she is placed on on bed rest at, at the home and she kind of becomes I want to I, maybe focal point isn't the right word, but throughout this story, throughout everybody's individual story, there's a, pretty much everyone has one scene back at home with grandma that that becomes either like a confessional or a reflection. It's just used in a bunch of different ways, really nicely. Grandma kind of becomes like your home base uh, for this movie, right? And it, and it's interesting. You see all these different stages of life, right? You've got Yang Yang, who's like. Eight, ten. Yeah, I don't know if they say his age, but like he is eight years old as a, an actor, I believe, and I know he had written him as maybe a, a ten-year-old or something. But throughout some of his story, I mean, you see kind of, I think it's insinuated as the development of like his first crush, right? You've got Ting Ting, the older sister. She's a teenager. She's kind of going through like a fur, like she. I think she has her first date during this movie. You've got. Uh, the brother-in-law getting married. You've got NJ, the dad, who uh, is going through a little bit of a a little bit of an existential crisis. He he runs into an old flame from high school and like has scenes with her where he's he's reflecting on his past. And then you've got grandma who's in a coma, and it's just seeing this one family, but all of these different stages of life and and really formative moments in life from when you're young but all the way up through when you have a parent that is you know possibly on their deathbed there's just a lot here and uh it is it is really all weaved together really beautifully and kind of seamlessly i mean it's really stunning yeah i think like you were saying they each get their kind of like their due 
time and moments where we we really feel what their specific motivations or our problems are. And yeah, did you have any particular like I love <laughs> Yang Yang's character and his uh just how kind of curious and sensitive he is. He doesn't talk much, but carries around a camera uh and kind of just snaps these, you know, photos of of life and is like uh, you see a lot of, like you talked about before, the girls picking on him and, and um, some some people in school doing the same. I just think he, he does, I think he does such a great job of like, you don't hear him say much the whole film, but you, you really get an idea of what it's like at, at that age for that type of kid. Well, and, and you uh, see him absorbing absolutely everything, right? Yeah. He just seems to be, especially like he's got that camera, he just seems to be observing and taking note of everything that's around him. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, there's a couple characters that like every moment on screen I just absolutely love, and, and he's one of them. Who's your who's the other one? Oh, one? Mr. Ota. Yeah. The Japanese businessman who becomes... So so NJ uh, is trying to get this deal done at work. He's just got some corporate job. They don't go into super specifics. It's clear that he's just got some sort of... He's a suit that is not fully happy or fulfilled, I think, in his professional life, right? And he is trying to seal some deal with this Japanese businessman who becomes a, I think, friend and confidant and kind of a uh, like a sage weird mentor in the like three scenes we get with him and that dude is awesome <laughs> yeah i i have in my notes just like every scene between nj and ota is just so fantastic big smile on my face and most of them and i yeah i i really love their relationship because you don't get too much of um of nj's actual like relationship with his his wife she's kind of in and out of the film but yeah seeing seeing their uh the just the dialogue between them is is really great yeah well and it's funny that you bring up his wife right because i think both of those characters give you an insight into kind of some of the philosophy and the questions that this film is asking right about maybe what is the meaning of life or or why are we here what what is what is meant to fulfill us because the wife like halfway through the movie just kind of has has a breakdown when i believe it's her mother is the one that is in a coma and they're all told that they should take shifts essentially talking to grandma because it it stimulates her senses and she realizes that she goes in and talks to her for two minutes max and she runs out of things to say and she just kind of has this breakdown and the line that she says that absolutely destroyed me was i live a blank what am i doing every day she has this crisis of, you know, whether it's some sort of unfulfilled dreams or just realizing that she is just kind of maybe robotically trudging through life, right? And so you get, you start, you start getting these ideas of, of examining what we're here for. And then with Mr. Ota, he has this great, great scene. I think it's the first scene that we see him in. It may not be. I'd have to go back and look. But with NJ, where he is asking, he's he's talking about how new things scare us as humans, right? And he's like, Why are we afraid of the first time? Every day in life is a first time. Every morning is new. 
We never live the same day twice. We never afraid of getting up every morning. Why? He's just like this crazy Japanese philosopher guy that comes out of nowhere. Um, and it might help a little that those scenes are the only scenes spoken in English, so maybe I connect with them. Just There's just that much more thing for me to connect to, right? Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, that scene is awesome. And every time, even there's a scene where he does magic. He does a magic trick and explain, like he, he's explaining to NJ that he tells this great story about how he learned magic as a kid relates it to the business deal saying I think your partners want a magician but I'm not that I'm just a businessman um, mm-hmm. but he actually does a magic trick on camera for us like there are no cuts it's one long take so they had they had to get this guy to do his dialogue and shoot this scene and also nail this magic trick that clearly like it's like pull a card out of the deck and he did it i mean i was like blown away from a technical <laughs> standpoint that they this guy can act and say his lines and do the emotional part of it and also nail this magic trick ota rules ota for president ota rules. forever <laughs> yeah so i think that's a good good way to like that particular magic scene that both of them uh are kind of sitting down in this uh traditional table setting uh having their meal and their both characters both subjects are fully in frame but are like you know sitting down cross-legged one of the cool things about this film i think is all of these static shots with like full characters in frame letting these things play out on on screen so there's a lot of these scenes throughout where you're just kind of peering in on um a scene between two people and a lot of them through glass, uh, some kind of distorted in, in a way where you know you could hear all of the dialogue, but you you're lo- you're seeing wa- looking through this glass that has all of these reflections on it. Which I, I just like all the the methods of I guess cinematography used in this of all of these kind of static shots used beautifully, where you're just sitting with these characters. But yeah, like speaking of the windows, I just I I think there's some immaculate window shots. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, uh, in this film, yeah. dude. Like, I mean, like the city of Taipei kind of becomes almost its own character. Right. And I think maybe that's that's probably true about in the mood for love too. But you, there are so many times where, uh, yeah, I mean, you just see the reflection of maybe cars going by outside or a uh, a cityscape, and um, especially during very emotional moments. Mm-hmm. I had a happy tear during that scene that I, I mentioned where NJ's wife is kind of having this existential crisis, realizing that she she just doesn't have a fulfilling life. Mm-hmm. And what happens right after that is she, she sits there crying, weeping audibly, and NJ just closes the blinds. And all we, we can see from outside their like high-rise building mm-hmm. is the nighttime city with cars going by reflected in this window. And it just like tore me to pieces that, you know, you could be having the worst day of your life or the, the you know, this horribly emotional moment. And true to life... The world's just gonna keep spinning, man. You know, you're just you're just a person in a place, just like everyone else, and we're yeah. all just trying to figure shit out. It's just the the way that this movie captures so beautifully what it's like to just be a person in the world 
and how the hugest things to us are just we're just a, a light in a window at night just like everyone else you know what i mean he uses that method to really like also just to be able to kind of show two scenes at once which i think is so kind of brilliant and uh whether it's like you're peering in from the front windshield of a car and you get those reflections um or like you that specific scene you were talking about but just going back to the the city and place i just think the city's captured so precisely in in the film like you get these overhead shots of characters like under uh, like the highway or you're often peering in in windows and all of these things are you're kind of aware of that they're in this city environment with tons of people around and what it's like growing up as a family in that sort of space. I read in uh, the publication Film Comment, Lawrence Garcia writes that he says an urban filmmaker, he's talking about Yang here, he goes, an urban filmmaker of the highest order, Yang captured Taipei with an uncanny sense of proportion, an intuitive feel for how to balance his story's sensuous rhythms and its overlapping narrative lines. And uh, yeah, I, I couldn't put it more perfectly, but that's how it kind of feels because the film does have this rhythm to it and you're constantly kind of pushed along in this really, really beautiful flow of, uh, of overlapping narrative lines that gives you this, this all-encompassing picture, right? Yeah, and that, I mean, that connects back to kind of the music of this this film, right? The flow of it, a one and a two, right? Right. The Another happy tear I had was a musical moment with my main man, Ota. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's the first time him and NJ get together. They, they are at this, they go to a karaoke bar and, you know, Ota really seems to have a really wonderful outlook on life. He seems just like a guy that understands how to be happy. And I don't know if I can explain <laughs> that any any more yeah. detailed yeah. but he but he seems to really relish the small pleasures of life i don't remember exactly how the sequence of events goes but he ends up going on stage to play the piano in this taiwanese karaoke bar right they're in they're in taiwan there right they're not in japan uh, or are they in japan at that i time? don't know no, they, they're in Taiwan because he okay. came to their office. I remember that because he had the, even, even then, right, he had the pigeon on his shoulder and he was whistling like <laughs> damn Snow White. <laughs> He's a magical man. Oh, man. I love Ota. Do you not, do you not understand me, Brandon? <laughs> I'm, I'm on board. <laughs> Anyway, so he goes up and plays piano. It's just it's kind of like a hard cut to him. Uh, he's like, do you do you play music? And then all of a sudden he's up there, and it's like three guys on the stage singing. And for whatever reason, the pure joy of that moment brought me to tears. It was great. I don't even know. I think it was a, a pop song, like a non-American pop song, but I, I couldn't say for sure. And it was just yeah. absolutely beautiful. Kind of going back to some of the generational stuff, there's a really great sequence where they cross-cut between 
NJ rekindling a sort of romance with his high school flame and his daughter Ting Ting on her first date. And it's just this wonderful sequence where you get the excitement of a first date and then two people recalling their first date 30 years later. And, you know, when you're talking about uh, looking at families generationally i mean it's this is just a really great example it also gave super both before sunrise and before sunset vibes <laughs> if you really think about it mm-hmm. and uh i super loved it there's a there's a line that nj says to sherry who is his high school flame um he says we all wore uniforms back then but yours seemed different and she says in what way and he just says in a special way like that's so sweet it's beautiful i loved it yeah so i guess i mean are we going directly into happy tears now (laughs) yeah i mean because here's the thing we can there is so much to this movie that that we could never really talk about anything without everything without doing a three-hour podcast so yeah let's let's cut into our happy tears moments i've mentioned a couple of mine i have several more lots of happy tears from from this guy this time around so uh (laughs) why why, i'm gonna let you go first so here's the deal i don't think so here's a a three-hour film i'm not sure that there was it's hard for me to pinpoint specific moments where i was like i felt super different from others i think i was kind of in this wavelength or flow the whole film because there's kind of this magical element of the movie where you're just like kind of drifting through the narrative and i don't know like i think of it as like kind of magical movie making of like something particular to cinema and this sort of thing that's hard to explain but so i feel like i was kind of engrossed and and (laughs) kind of in that in the pocket yeah in the pocket (laughs) of a feeling kind of like uh, a joy of like watching these things unfold and life on screen captured so wonderfully that I was kind of in in the happy tear pocket the whole time but never went on any crazy solos I feel like we should think of a word for that later <laughs> where it's it's like instead of one very intense moment of tears you take that intensity and you stretch it out for three hours what <laughs> right. is that called <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, that's it's a it. happy trance. I don't know. Happy trance. <laughs> we'll, we'll workshop that later. <laughs> well, that's great. I mean, I, I, I fully understand that scenario. Yeah, state of being. Yeah, not the case over here, my friend. <laughs> I was crying like a baby at points and had a couple just like single tears at other points. You know, we talked about grandma being home base, so everybody got a moment with her uh there is one with ting ting the teenaged uh daughter of the family where she she thinks it's her fault that grandma fell and went into this coma because she forgot to take the trash out grandma was outside so one could maybe assume she was taking the trash out and fell and she starts crying and she's like if this is my fault please wake up if you forgive me wake up and i was bawling like a baby because she's Mm. so good in that scene this is the only movie that that girl is in according to imdb and it's just crazy because she's so good everybody's so good but that scene's really great tore me to pieces all right what else what else should i throw at you um so this is kind of going back to kind of the philosophy of the movie yang yang 
being this, you know, eight, ten-year-old kid, also kind of an amateur philosopher over here, he's asking his dad questions like, can I see what you see? Can you see what I see? Like, it's very much like <laughs> philosophy 101 questions of, how do you know the blue that I see is the blue that you see? <laughs> But I do appreciate that he's asking these questions early. Um, but he's also he also says something pretty profound, and he's like, "I can't see behind me. Can I only see half the truth?" You know, uh, which is a really interesting thought, and I think something that is explored throughout the movie. And then later in the movie, he's got these photos developed that he's taken, and they're of the backs of like twenty people's heads. Right, each each individual mm -hmm. photo is the back of a person's head. And my first reaction to that was that it was kind of Yang Yang saying, no one looks at me, right? It's like a, it, the youngest child seeking attention or expressing that he is, he is often neglected. And that right. made me very sad. So happy and, tears there. And a quick spoiler alert just for a, a special moment. Nothing like plot heavy here, but just... Yeah, yeah. I should, yeah, I should say these happy tears might come with some spoilers for sure. Okay. But yeah, the, but the photos turn out to be, like, he takes one to his uncle Adi, the guy that, like, gambles and stuff, and says, here, this is for you, so you so you know what it looks like, or something. I can't remember <laughs> the exact line. And then his dad, who had seen the photos, was like, oh, so that's why he did that. But either way, the photos, I thought, were really poignant mm -hmm. and very sweet. I've got a bunch of other moments I love. We don't got time for all of them, because I would just recite the the whole movie for you <laughs> and you could just watch it so the last one i had and and i'll this is the big spoiler warning because it's the very final scene of the movie so if you plan to watch this and don't want to be spoiled this is like the big one that maybe i'd avoid so brandon this may be the ultimate happy tear for me like i was moved so much that i was like weeping because Yang Yang is, it's, it's grandma's funeral. She has passed away. And Yang Yang, who had declined to talk to her while she was in the coma, comes up and he's this little kid. And he's written out in a notebook this, like, speech for grandma. And it's the sweetest thing in the world, right? He's, he's saying, I won't repeat the whole thing, but, I, I, you know, I'm sorry I didn't talk to you. I feel like you always tell me to listen, so anything I would say, you already know. That's why you tell me to listen. I don't know where you've gone, but hopefully someday I'll come find you. All these beautiful childlike moments that are also wonderfully written and poignant thoughts on existence, right? Yeah. And it's very touching, and I'm bawling like a baby. And it ends with him mentioning his baby cousin, who was born in, you know, at one point in this story while we're watching the movie, who still doesn't have a name. And he he says it reminds me of when you always said you feel old because now I feel old. And he's like this little 10 year old boy. And so I'm weeping and then I start belly laughing also. <laughs> and then I go back, like Tess happened to be like making tea and she's like looking over watching me going. <laughs> and it was the most intense 
You know, I think we all have had those moments in movies where you're like crying one moment and laughing the next. Um, humor is a great way to break tension, especially in sad moments in movies. I think we've all had some form of that. Yeah. This may be the most intense <laughs> version of me laughing and crying simultaneously because I'm so uh, touched and also it's very funny. So I don't know if there's like a name that I need to put to that also. But it was sincerely like the ultimate form of a happy tear. It was like going Super Saiyan. <laughs> and I think that represents like the extreme, but like that sort of sensation you kind of get throughout the movie where there are a lot of really comical moments throughout the film that are kind of sandwiched between really profound moments or really big moments in someone's in someone's life. Like we just going back to the ritual element we and and talking about how it ends in a funeral but there's like a lot of life in there in, in between like we see a birth and all of these like kind of love triangles and past loves all these things that are kind of pretty emotionally up and down but it you'd never sink too much into this melodramatic moment ever and you never go you know too high or too out there either it's like that's why i think it feel, there's like this kind of poetic nature to the filmmaking but it's not in like a melodramatic sense it's in just like a seeing something that feels so real on screen sort of sense the simplest way i can kind of think about it is just a reflection on how beautifully messy life is right like if in the mood for love is everything in your life falls apart and it's miserable but it can also be very beautiful this movie is life is beautiful and exciting and an adventure that can also be very messy and very difficult and painful at times right they're like opposites opposite sides of the coin you know not like a yin and a yang because that would be too on the nose (laughs) well that's good This is a three-hour movie, so that that is fair warning for anybody who does want to see it. It's also not the easiest to find. I had to borrow your copy, Brandon, but it is super worth seeking out. It is the best three-hour movie I've ever seen. I made a list just to make sure. <laughs> and, it I mean, Yee has already made, like, I've got an ongoing list of my favorite films, and both... Yee Yee and In the Mood for Love have earned slots on that. Right now I've got Yee Yee at 28, just behind Before Sunset and just ahead of Toy Story. (laughs) (laughs) And then I've got In the Mood for Love right now for me at 43, just behind Inside Lewin Davis and right before Pulp Fiction. So just in case anybody is... If you like any of those movies, I think these films are on par with those and honestly the longer i sit with them i could see both of them climbing my list it's just hard to compare it to like star wars and alien and (laughs) indiana jones and yeah it's a totally totally different experience there but but yeah i just think it's wild that films like these like i know that many you know of of my friends would have either not seen these or maybe not even heard uh, of these and since um, looking at just last year, Parasite being an international film uh, that had such big acclaim and was 
such a you know a big movie at the Oscars and widely seen I think it's a, a really good sign of where you know international cinema is right now and and maybe people's uh, interest in that moving forward and some of these gems can be seen by a lot more people so uh, just uh, you know just another library plug from your boy <laughs> <laughs> shameless library plug <laughs> that yeah a lot of these are going to be available at the library in criterion form so utilize that uh resource yeah i mean parasite's a great example of since we're in such a more connected world because of social media and the internet these days it, it is so much easier for a movie like parasite to receive this wide acclaim and and uh, buzz buzz and box office success you can only wonder what a movie like this or in the mood for love or even crouching tiger hidden dragon uh, actually won the oscar for for best foreign film and it was submitted by taiwan in 2000 which is kind of crazy that all three of those really good films came out of of china and taiwan at that time and yeah just to think about in our more connected world in 2020, if any of those films, but especially these more kind of independent uh, art house style films came out today, how they would be received and if more people would know about them or, or see them. But at the very least, you and I can wave that flag, baby. The library flag? The library flag. <laughs> I am going to get you, if there's a flag for the library, you're getting it for Christmas, my friend. Ah, <laughs> uh, good. Thank you for listening to Happy Tears. Happy Tears is produced by Nick Melita and Brandon Henry. You can find us on all the social media. We're on Instagram at Happy Tears Podcast, Twitter at Happy Tears Pod, and we have a Facebook page that you can like. You can also leave us a review at Apple Podcasts or on Apple Podcasts, I should say. Those reviews help us grow and expand. Aggressive expansion. That's a uh, Dark Knight reference. Original theme music by Homage. You could check out his music at youtube.com slash homagebeats or on Instagram at homagebeats. Check out our Spotify playlist. It's called Happy Tears Mixtape. We throw tracks on there that we talk about on this podcast and recommend. So give that a listen and follow. And of course, uh, last episode, we talked about our uh, Q3 and review for music. So we have a playlist called Q3 HT uh, with some, some songs from that episode and from those three months that we love. Go check that out. We will link to those in the show notes. And that is it for this episode of Happy Tears. Happy Tears.